Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs, where we get real about all things that go on below the belt. I'm your host, Jocelyn Conley, founder of the Vagina Doc, pelvic floor physical therapist. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Juwan Martin, a colleague, a friend, and a mentor. And today we get real about addressing pelvic floor dysfunction virtually. Juwan, or Jay for short, is the owner and the founder of JMM Health Solutions in Atlanta, Georgia. She herself also is a pelvic health physical therapist, and she helps women rock their births, improve postpartum healing, enhance their sex life, and return to fitness. Benefits to listening to today's episode, you're going to learn about the options of receiving help if you can't easily see someone in person. You're going to learn about some of the benefits of seeing someone virtually. You're also going to receive tips on how to get the most of your visits to the doctor. Before we dive into today's episode, remember our disclaimer. The information used on this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used in lieu of or in substitute of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. And it's not just, oftentimes it's just that people, people have assumptions. Like I told somebody one of my stories, I went into, a, a, it was a dental office and I went in there and I was like, hey, um, what are your out-of-pocket rates? And the first thing the lady says was, we don't take Medicaid. That's not what I asked you. I asked you, what are your out-of-pocket rates? And she's like, well, we have um, a sliding scale and... I said, okay, do you, you actually have a, like a, just a cash pay rate? Like what, what is it? And she seemed so confused. And I was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I said, the reason why I was asking just for you to know, but not that I'm going to utilize your services at this point was because we don't carry dental insurance. We didn't, you know, it wasn't necessary at the time. So we, it was just my husband and I, we didn't carry dental insurance. We were doing a health share. We did a health share for our insurance because we're two healthy individuals. We had a $5,000 deductible. So anything was going to be cash pay until 5,000. And for, you know, dental, like I don't have any dental issues. So all we would do is pay out of pocket to go have, um, have our teeth done. I mean, he had to have a crown and I had to do the same thing with him. And it was so funny because I walked into an office because I happened to be in the area and I had asked him the same question. I was like, how much is it for your crowns? And well, we don't take Medicaid. I asked you what the price of the crown was though. And, and so this was what I was getting. And I'm like, do you just assume that I don't, I didn't have the money to pay you? Like, what is your assumption with me asking this question? Cause I just asked a question and you haven't answered it. Like I asked you nothing about Medicaid, nothing about that, but there are all these assumptions that people have, you know, so they prejudge even before they care the, the patient before they can get their story, their concerns, all that type of stuff. And, and people, so it's, you know, the more you go through it, the more hardened you are to certain medical environments. And you just, people are like, yeah. That, so that's one of the reasons why too, sometimes you look at certain populations and you go, well, I just don't understand why this person would not take care of themselves in terms of why would they not go to the doctor? But when you go to a physician who doesn't care for you, they're not caring, you're just a number. And that's been your experience. 
then unless I'm sick, there's really no reason for me to go. And that's the mentality that a lot of people adopt, R right or wrong. That's just the mentality that they adopt because it's not like they're getting care when they go anyway, you know? And, and unfortunately, this may be, you know, when we talk about areas where you have a lower population of physicians and specialists, like smaller towns and stuff like that, you might have people that don't go to the doctor for decades. So. You made the point that you made with, with how you're spoken to by the, was it the receptionist? Mm -hmm. So you I walk mean, in the front desk and, and that's, you know, that's what you get. I get so much anxiety speaking to receptionists that that will be a barrier for me to even to, to schedule an appointment. And I am a white blonde female that, I mean, other than the assumption, this is the assumption that I've got, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're healthy. And that is enough to make me mad. And that's such that there I go. That's white privilege right there speaking. And I can't even imagine, you know, the, the other reasons that would, would give someone anxiety to not schedule, which is so, it has to change. It, it does. I mean, I, I think a lot of the times what people have found is that doctors tend to be very dismissive. Um, and I don't know if that's, I can't speak for everyone. So I don't know if that's a race thing or if that's just, that person is just a complete asshole thing. Um, but, but that's, you know, and, and you have to look at the, the psychology of it all. If you go into an environment where you don't feel welcomed, where you don't feel like you're being treated well, are you going to go back to that environment? You know, you're going to struggle. And the other thing is that you find that I think in some cases, doctors are ill-equipped to deal with, um, with patients of color. So you may go in and you may see um, a diagnosis or you may, you may have symptoms as a person. You go in and you're like, hey, I have these symptoms. Well, the textbooks show nothing. You look in all of the textbooks, white patients. You look at, you know, you search Dr. Google, white patients, <laughs> you know, so there are a lot of doctors who are like, they have no clue. You know, I, I remember speaking to some, some clinicians and um, they were white and they were like, well, what are the adverse effects of, let's say, you know, modalities on a person whose skin is black? Like, what, what, is, what is an adverse effect? Like, we don't know. Like, we, we wouldn't know what it was. And speaking from experience, you know, my daughter, when she was about a year and a half has started to develop um, an allergic reaction to dairy. At that time, we didn't know because she was at home. I stayed home with her for, um, for about six months. And then I was at home. Well, essentially, I mean, we were home with her at, you know, in some capacity, either my husband or myself, because I worked at the hospital PR and I did, you know, that schedule so I could be home with her during the week. And so she was a year and a half when we were finally like, okay, I think I'm going to send you to preschool, <laughs> you know, and we did a Christian preschool was highly recommended by people in our community. I, I loved the school. I loved the teachers and I was very comfortable with it. I wanted to yank her within the first month. My child had not been sick. She'd never been sick. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to deal with this because she hadn't been sick, you know? 
And that first month she went into school, she had like runny nose and I'm like, it's okay. And then she developed this cough. And then it was like, this cough is not going away. And I'm like, oh, this is really not just a cold, <laughs> you know? And I was like, hmm, well, she had an appointment coming up and she had spiked a fever and we'd gotten, the, it was a low grade fever, but she was running a fever for like four days and then it'd go away. Then she had a rash. And I was like, yeah, okay, this is interesting, but okay. So we took her to the doctor and he says, cause she was due for her checkup anyway, her um, 18 month checkup. And he goes, well, she's got an ear infection in her, I believe at that time it was her left ear. And so he prescribed antibiotics. And I was like, mm, how about antibiotics? Okay, fine, whatever. So I gave her antibiotics by like day three, the kid was fine. She's running around, happy as a clam finished on day seven by like the ninth day because we stopped the you know finished the course antibiotics by day seven by like what would have been day nine yep everything was back I'm like what the what was the point of antibiotics and so here we go I'm like okay she'll be fine and we're doing like all the you know holistic herbal all the you know conservative remedies and stuff like that because I mean outside of a runny nose and a cough like the kid was running around like nobody's business but what concerned me was she would spike a fever and she would have have this rash and it wasn't like a heat rash because this was like September, October, which is still blazing hot in Georgia, but it wasn't like a heat rash and it wasn't, and she, you know, and I'm like, why the heck she got a fever for like three, four days and then it'd go away. And then a week or two later it'd come back. So I took her to the doctor again, because I was just like one day she spiked, her fever was like 104. I was like, oh no, we going to the doctor. We went and he was like, oh, she's got an ear infection in the other ear and his, you know, his remedy, let's give her antibiotics. I'm like, time out, dude, time out. <laughs> like, this is, I'm, like, this is screaming viral to me. Like, like my mom gut is like kicking in. I'm like, this is screaming viral. Like, why are we doing antibiotics? So I didn't take them. I was like, whatever. And the next month it was like the same thing. So I was like, now by this time it's like November. And she had, I took her then because like this rash was just getting worse. Where like, was it? Where could you see it? All over. Oh. Like it went from just her hands to just her, to like her legs, her back, her chest. And it wasn't wow. like, at first it was like tiny heats, like how a heat rash would develop. Yeah. It wasn't like eczema. So she wasn't having dry, scaly skin. And I was like, why the hell do you have a rash? And so I took it him to, because then, fever still there. Like, what the heck is happening? And mind you, we're lactose intolerant in our house. So the only thing that she was having with dairy was she was having yogurt. And I would actually, I had stopped buying the yogurt um, from the store. I would buy, I was making yogurt. So I would make Greek yogurt at home, which the, you know, she loved, but I didn't think anything of it because, you know, it's, it's whatever. I didn't think that that was what was causing it. And then, you know, so we went back to her and I was like, okay, this rash is bothering me. Like something is up. It's clearly viral. I need to make sure it's none of the heavy hitters. Don't think it's scarlet fever. Like, is it this? Is it Kawasaki's? Like, what the heck? Cause I don't know. Cause there's nobody in any of the pictures that looks like my kid. And he goes, yeah, it's definitely viral. Followed by let's give her an antibiotic. I turned around and I walked out. I walked out. She had a flu. She ended up 
um, running a fever. My husband, who is usually not the one to say, take him to the doctor, was like, take her to the doctor. Because she had like this high fever. And when I took her in, you know, this was probably, and she had, she started wheezing. This was, and that was what concerned me. So this was probably three weeks after I'd taken her for the rash. Like, what the heck is going on? And so the, this was another doctor. He was like, okay, A, I think she's got the flu. B, fever started four days ago. So I'm not giving her any Tamiflu. Let it run its course. I'm like, okay, great. The, I'm concerned about the wheezing. So I'm really just here because I wasn't going to give her the Tamiflu anyway. I'm more concerned about her wheezing. We may need to have a bronchodilator. He was like, I agree. So we'll go ahead and do that and see if it eases some of the discomfort that she has. Um, and we can control that. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and make an appointment to mind you. And she lost like four pounds, poor thing. So, She's so young, she was so little. So I went ahead and I had followed up with, he told me to come back in to follow up with our pediatrician who was his colleague. Um, and I was like, I think there's something else going on. I think this may be an allergic reaction, no sort of all right, mom, you know, I can't really figure this out. Let's see where it goes. Let's go ahead and do that. No, nothing. Well, let's give her, an like, he's like, at no point in time is this man listening. I'm like, you realize that I'm in healthcare, dude? Like, I, I work in the other building, like, <laughs> you know? And I took her, I called the, the allergist and I was like, listen, I need an appointment for my daughter. And if y'all tell me foolishness about two months from now, I'm a pitch of fit. I need an appointment like tomorrow. We got her in, I had already started her on an elimination diet. And the funny thing is when I did that, her rash started to clear up. And when we would reintroduce the dairy, like then she would start, like her skin would start freaking out again. So I just walked into the allergist, like, I think my child's got a dairy allergy. I need you to confirm it. And she was like, well, let's do this, this, that. I, we already did all that stuff. Here's the log. And she was like, hmm, cool. Let's avoid dairy. She didn't want to, she was like, because of how young she was, she's like, I don't think that we need to do the test because right now she's not in an active inflammatory state. Like she's not wheezing and stuff. Cause in between the visit to the allergist and the flu visit, we had an ER visit because I came home from the hospital one Saturday and my husband was like, she looked like she got bit by a mosquito right here. It was red. And within two hours, the child's face was like swollen. Lips were swollen. And we are like, we jumped, grabbed her, jumped in the car, and I was hauling tail down the highway. And, you know, and I got there, walked in, and I was like, her vitals are fine. Here are her vitals. Here's this, here's that. And the girl is looking at me, oh, are you in healthcare, sweetheart? I don't have time to talk to you and be casual. Like, here are her vitals. Where's the attending? Like, here's what's going on. I need something for this. Clearly, she's got urticaria. The doctor comes out. She's got urticaria. I know that. Well, there's nothing that we can do. Ugh. And I was ticked. And, and how much of that is, you know, you're not listening to me as a, as a parent, as a black parent or whatever. I don't know. But a lot of that, what my frustration was during that time was like, there was nothing. Like I could not look anywhere and see if this was something that was, you know, there was something else out there for a person of color. Because I'm looking at the rush and the doctor is looking at it, He's like, let's give her an antibiotic. And oftentimes with women of color, when they're going into these healthcare providers, they're going to present symptom wise, they might present differently than a white woman. 
and then because of that they're dismissed so we know that in some cases where white women may feel you know may complain of sharpness burning stinging for vaginal disorders that some women of color may describe it as itching and again how much of that is it truly does feel like an itching sensation versus culturally how much of that when you factor in also foreign black women is you know we don't talk about genitals we don't talk about this and maybe that's the most polite way to describe what's happening i don't know but ultimately the descriptions or the the subjective complaints are a little bit different and they're they're dismissed so a lot of the times they're they're dismissed and then things just start brewing and festering and worsening along the way. And it's like, well, this could have been solved if you had done some sort of thorough assessment as opposed to just casually dismissing, you know, this individual. So, I mean, we've got a ways to go. Yeah, we've definitely do. And that seven minutes that you have with the physician is just like, not enough. Do you have any advice that you can give to any of the listeners on I mean, how to approach doc, a doctor's visits so that this doesn't happen? Come, come. First of all, if you're if you're any woman, woman of color, uh, just woman in general, um, and and this is me with the assumption that your audience is women. But if you're an individual going to a physician's office, be prepared to speak up. Oftentimes, people go to physicians. And it's, it's almost as if they're, they get there and then it's like stage fright. Like they're completely dumbfounded, can't open their mouth, can't say anything. It's like, mm-hmm, 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 you know, and they, they can't say anything. And what I recommend is get a notepad and write stuff down. You have symptoms, write it down. You need to keep a log, then keep a log, be, be systematic in terms of, you know, on this that, you know, put a date you know, times if you need to, but at least have a date so that you can correlate things when you're looking back. And if you have questions with regards to things that are going on with you, write them down because sometimes you get to the doctor's office, we're human, we'll forget, you know, and then you get out to the car and you're like, oh shoot, I forgot to ask him about this. But make sure that you have all that information and don't get up until they have answered all your questions. That was the advice that I've always given my patients. When you walk into a doctor's office, you are paying them. And if you have questions that you need answered, ask them, you you know, you, you not saying anything doesn't get you anywhere. So you need to make sure that you're asking the questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. Like, don't, don't be afraid, you know, write them down. If you have to take someone with you, if you feel intimidated, if you have a friend or a family member that is available, take someone with you. If you feel like you can't advocate for yourself, then have someone there who can for you. Yeah. Great advice. Simple yet powerful. And even if the physician cannot stay there, you can at least leave that, those questions there and follow up mm-hmm. because yeah, I mean, even I get, I get stage fright, which is ridiculous, but there's, there's that sense of power And it really, if you waited a month to get in, you want to get your, you want to have all your Mm -hmm. questions answered. So how, can you offer any advice on, like, let's say a person goes to, to a doctor's office and they, 
are dismissive or not, they may not be dismissive, but how do, how does one know if it really isn't anything or that doctor is blowing them off? Are they listening to you? If a doctor is not even allowing you to finish a sentence or a statement, you can't ask me, how am I doing or what is the problem and not allow me to even get two words out. You have to be able to listen. Now, granted, in our medical system, the problem is, is that everything is dictated by insurance. And that being said, you know, when people get there, the doctors are like double booked, triple booked, they're in there for five minutes, like they don't have the time. It's, it's not conducive to a listening environment. You've got one or two options, one of two options. You can continue in that standard of care, or you can go to a different model and seek physicians. Maybe they're a little bit more costly. If you can afford it, I would absolutely um, encourage it. But a functional medicine physician or a solo practice physician, whereby it's just them in their office, they tend to offer a lot more time and the office environment tends to be a lot more personable than if you go to a larger practice, multiple doctors, those types of things. Um, but if, if, if you are there and you cannot get your story out, then that's a problem because your story is what's going to help us solve the problem. And granted, there are some patients that are very long-winded. Like you ask them what's going on and we're talking about the current problem and they're telling you about what happened to Betty, who's their second cousin or their cousin twice removed um, 25 years ago, then we need to rein them in a little bit, right? We need to make sure, okay, sorry to hear about Betty, but we're talking about you. So tell me what's going on. If you need it, like they may need to be a little more direct. But ultimately, they should be giving you an opportunity to share your story. If they're not doing that, then that already is a sign. If you have cares or concerns that they're not answering or addressing. So you walk in and you're like, I've got this issue. Like, like there's um, Doc, you know, I've got this pain. And they, the first thing they do is write a script and say, here, go fill this at the pharmacy. That's a problem. You haven't, you haven't listened to me. You haven't looked to see what the issue is. You haven't assessed the issue. You have not laid hands on me. I'm like, that's crazy. I could understand if it was a virtual session, but if I come in your office, like you at least need to be assessing something, right? Like, so if I go in there and I'm like, doc, my ankle's just been swelling really bad. I don't understand what's going on. Like, did they look at the ankle? Did they actually see you move the ankle? Did they see how much movement you had? Did they look around to make sure that there wasn't any bites or any, you know, puncture marks to see if it was a, you know, insect bite or if it's infected? Did they measure it to look at your swelling? Did they assess the edema to see if it was pitting, non-pitting? Did they check your pedal pulses to make sure that there was something going on there? Like, what did they do? Did they just walk in, look at your foot and go, okay, and walk back out? That's a problem. And that's, that's really like a very simplistic version. But then when we think about people who are coming in with compounded cases, cardiac issues, or, you know, they're coming in and they've got all these other comorbidities that need a lot more of attention, then you, you can't be in a doctor's office where they're just dismissing your claims and concerns. I had a, a patient recently that I, when I evaluated him, Actually, before I evaluated him, so he found my information online and he contacted me. 
uh, or he emailed me and asked if, you know, we could set up a time, just a quick time to talk. And I said, sure, because he wanted to schedule an appointment, but he wanted to know if I could treat his issues. And he said, well, I went to, you know, he's telling me, he's like, I have this pain. I said, well, did you see? And he described it for me. I said, okay, who have you seen? Have you seen the urologist? Well, I, I'm not going back to him. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I said, well, what, what's going on? Did you, was, were you referred from your primary care physician? Did you just go straight to urologist? Well, my doctor, I went to my primary doctor and they gave me some medication, but then told me I needed to see the urologist. And I went to the urologist. He walked in the room and I just told him I had pain and he just gave me a script and say, here, take this, schedule an appointment out front, come back in like how many ever weeks or months or whatever. It's like probably like two months or three months. And he was like, he, he didn't do anything. So as he was talking, I said, well, well, let's go through a few questions. Where is your pain? How long have you been having your pain? We went through that. And I said, okay, based on this information, here's what I think is happening, but that's only going to be confirmed on the eval. So he comes in and we have the evaluation. And he said to me that I know more and understand more about what's happening just in the conversation that we've had than going to the doctor's office. And they gave me medication that, that they, he didn't even look to see. They, they told him he had, so typical, it's a male patient. So they told him he had prostatitis, like you have prostatitis. And they gave him um, one, one of the medications was antibiotics. And I was like, oh, did they culture you? He's like, culture. I'm like, well, there are two types of prostatitis that are bacterial. So if he's going to give you antibiotics, he probably should be, should be culturing you before he gives you antibiotics. So did he culture you? No, he gave me the antibiotics and told me to make an appointment to come back. Standard of care. And I'm like, that's, that's the healthcare system we're living in. So yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's crazy. But a lot, a lot of the times we are, you know, a lot of physicians and trust me, there are phenomenal physicians out there that will care for you like no other. And then there are the others. <laughs> yeah. Just like any other profession. I mean, and they're everywhere, but I want to change gears a little bit and talk to you about telehealth because you are well known in the telehealth space and something that I have run into with people and patient, prospective patients is, well, they're not very open to telehealth because they don't think that they could receive physical therapy services without being in person. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we live in a different world now. And I know personally, a lot of women that are not getting the care that they need because they are a afraid to get the virus. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into that, can you give us a, a little bit about of why you started to, why you went into pelvic health physical therapy and then how did you transition or how did you discover telehealth? Um, so I've probably worked in pelvic health or with pelvic health clients for the most of my career. And I've been practicing 13 years. I, I started right out the gate working with pregnant and postpartum women. I worked with a lot of athletes. Um, I worked, I worked with a general population. So I saw everything from pediatrics up to older um, individuals, but my older individuals were active. I was, I lived two blocks away. I mean, I worked two blocks away from central park at the time. So my population was very, very active. Um, my oldest patient at the time was 94 or 95, 95. 
my salsa dancer was 94. Wow. He was a salsa instructor. Rico. Um, <laughs> so, but my other gentleman, he was 95 and he used a rollator and he would walk down to the clinic. And then sometimes he'd say, all right, guys, I'm going to take the long way home, which was he'd walk around the block to get to his apartment. Um, you know, that was the long way. And, but he would come in after his plan of care, he would come in, you know, three times a week faithfully. And unless he had a flare up of his pain, because he had chronic pain. So unless he had a flare up of his pain, he didn't do therapy. So, I mean, I saw them all the way through. Um, but I saw the pregnant and the postpartum women, a lot of the female athletes who had already had babies or whatnot. And I really was intrigued by that. Um, a little bit later on, so after I moved to Atlanta, my, I was a director of a clinic and it was right next door to a practice where there was a physician who was a trauma surgeon. And we used to get a lot of pelvic fractures. So a lot of the women that I saw who were his patients weren't just the typical broken ankle, broken wrist, that kind of thing. You know, they were pelvic fractures and some were non-operative and some were operative, um, you know, and it was interesting because it's like, okay, I can do all the orthopedic stuff on them, but there's that something extra because then we'd start to get into, all right, now, you know, walking better, doing this better, but sex is really painful or this, this, this is happening, but this is still a problem. And it wasn't like, it wasn't ever the functional day-to-day -day task that we would think of. It was more the, so like, Jay, every time I go to the bathroom, like, like, um, I have a sensation and it was like, Hmm, tell me more. Um, and so that kind of piqued my interest a little bit more. And at that point in time, I started looking more into information, um, regarding, you know, pelvic health and, and, and just getting more knowledge, more advanced courses and stuff like that. Um, and then I had my own kids. Um, so there was just like a nice progression of, you know, of things that happened along the years um, that has piqued my interest in one aspect or another of pelvic health. Um, as far as telehealth goes, when I was around about when my daughter was born, so I was PRN at the hospital. And then I also decided to do um, some contract work at the time. And I was doing contract pediatric services which was great for my schedule. Cause then I could have the schedule and the flexibility that I needed for the kids. Cause then the son came real quick after that. So it was really convenient for me. But one of the things I found with the pediatric population is not all the parents could be present at the session. So sometimes I'd be going into kids' homes and it's just me and the grandma, or it was me and the nanny, or it was me and mom or it was me and dad, but like, you know, not all the time were both parents there. And what I would start doing, what I started doing was like, hey, can we do like a little WhatsApp chat or like a little video chat? Cause I mean, you know, I couldn't FaceTime, I don't have an Apple. So I'm like, can we do WhatsApp or Skype or whatever? Um, and you know, let's just make sure you're going through these exercises okay. Cause what would happen is they come back, especially like I saw a lot of babies with porticollis. Then I'd go through the exercises. I'd give them a handout. I see them the next week. I forgot the exercises. How did you forget them? You have a handout. Then I started recording videos for them and I would record them as they were doing the exercises with their baby and send that, well, how about, how, how are the exercises? Yeah, we didn't do them. So I said, okay, let me follow up with you. And I started doing it with just a couple of like the parents that I was really, really close to. 
and they loved it. One family in particular, dad was working, mom was at home, and dad did not, his job was not flexible enough to allow for him. Plus he had to commute like an hour to an hour and a half for work each way. So his job was not flexible enough to allow for him to be there at the appointment times. Um, and so I said, well, how about we in, include dad so that he, you know, he too feels like he's a part of it. And he's not missing out. Well, the feedback I got from dad was so like heartwarming. He was like, thank you so much for letting me be here because I feel like, you know, I'm not able to support. And then I can't do the stuff because I don't know if I'm doing stuff right or whatever. So I kept doing it. And then I, when I started my own practice, I was like, hmm, maybe we can do this. So I started seeing clients like after their initial eval, I would do a check-in and it was a virtual check-in and they loved it. And I was like, okay, let's go ahead and add more of these. And then I just ran from there. So I had some people who just wanted in person, some people who wanted virtual, but majority of the people that I saw at the time were virtual. And I was only doing virtual and home-based visits. Um, and that was it. And then, you know, then I started doing in-person visits in the clinic, um, one to two days a week, but I was still doing virtual because oftentimes I see them and didn't automatically convert them to virtual, you know, especially if they were people from the other side of town. And so they were outside of my driving distance and it was just, it's just an amazing thing. And people are like, wait, what? I don't have to leave my house. Like, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. This is great. And so then COVID hit and it was like, just do what we've been doing. Continue, you know. Um, so it's it's been great for me because this is something that I've done for a while. It's not, you know, it's not new. That's awesome. So what what would you say to the naysayers that are like, well, how are you going to know if you can't touch me? So the thing is, is I am not giving you um, therapy, pelvic therapy, physical therapy. I'm not. You have a problem. You're coming to me with an issue whatever your issue may be. My job is to solve your issue. It doesn't matter where I'm solving your issue. I can solve your issue in your house. I can solve your issue in an office. I can solve your issue through a computer. The ultimate thing is we both want your issue solved. Wherever that happens doesn't really matter. That is secondary. So I think the biggest thing is just helping patients to understand that. A lot of the times, people, if people don't understand things or understand processes, then they'll, they'll kind of go with what they know. So for a lot of people, they think, oh my God, I'm having pain with sex. So you must see me, you must lay hands on me. And it's like, okay, this is true. But I have clients who live three hours away. I have clients who are in New York. I have clients who are in Florida. I have clients who are back home in Barbados. I can't lay hands on any of them because they're not close enough but I've been able to resolve their problems um, just because I can still assess them. I can still have them do certain things. I can still educate them. And ultimately, one, they have the buy-in because now they're informed enough to know what we need to do. Two, we're going ahead and making this a consistent thing to where it's still like if you were coming into a clinic, it's still your regular sessions. We still need some consistency to ensure that we get the results that we want. But ultimately, you know, it, it's, you're really reinforcing that partnership. 
because it's, well, it's no different than the clinic. You know, if you come into the clinic to see me and then you're not doing the things you're supposed to do on your end, you're not going to, you can't expect to get any better. It's just no different. It's really no different. Yeah, I totally agree. I love virtual because you almost put the, the control in the patient's hands mm-hmm. and that can be scary for some. So I know for myself, when I'm working with someone online, I'm like, look, you're going to get a lot more out of this because the power is in your hands Mm -hmm. and you're learning what you're feeling and what you're experiencing and you're in your body all the time. I'm only here like once a week, an hour. So if you're listening and you are in, a, in an area where you don't have access to a, a pelvic floor physical therapist, there are other options out there. Like there, oh, I mean, especially now with, uh, with the increase in physical therapists offering virtual services because of the pandemic. And honestly, Jay, I don't know about you, but I feel like if I worked with people virtually first, the in-person care would be a lot more efficient. Well, I mean, there's some people who you like, I, so I've already started back offering in-person sessions. So I do still offer home visits now. Um, I have a few clients who are just like, you know, that's they're They're like, yeah, can we do a home visit? I have one in particular who she really wanted it because she has seven kids, eight and under. She just had a newborn. Oh my God, these are the cutest kids in the world. I love them. I love them to pieces. And my favorite is a two-year-old because that's the troublemaker. Um, He's my favorite. I love him. He's so snuggly. Um, But what she said was, I think having you here is a little bit easier because even on the computer, it's like, because she has to be with them. Hubby's at work. And even though like the older kids can kind of help the younger kids play, at least when I'm there, it's like, okay, mommy has the doctor here. This is a set time. You guys have to go down and play. So she feels like she has a little bit more control. And I, I get it. And you know, in some cases, some people may want it. But ultimately, though, I mean, I, I have a patient right now that I see virtually, love her to pieces. And she had gone to another, um, she'd gone elsewhere for therapy for pubic symphysis dysfunction. And they were like, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this. And she's like, was very active prior to having her baby. And she's like, you know, I just feel really dismayed. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And, you know, can you help me? I really want to get back to being active. And I said, okay. And we sat down and we went through movements and I said, so here's the thing. We did the eval. I kind of saw, you know, had her do a few things to assess one for her quality of movement. A, can she do it or can she not do it? B, the quality of the movement, and then C, making sure she wasn't having pain with anything, seeing what, seeing what was comfortable and what was not. Um, and then kind of charting out a plan. So here's what we want. We need to make sure that we have some baseline level of strengthening. So our very first session, we're creating a program for you. It's going to be an ABC system. So you've got three days of workouts. And on the days that you're not working out, we're going to do these things and, you know, kind of have her on a set program. So she already had that plan in mind. After that, we're going to see how you feel. So then the next week, we're going to see where you're at with that follow up. Was there anything that was problematic with that or not? We're going to kind of step that up a little bit. 
the next week, depending on how you do, we can start to add some light agility work, right? The next week, we're going to make it a little bit more dynamic. And then our goal is to progress you to running. I just saw her for her third session. And we're now to intervals for running. She couldn't, mind you, she had gone see somebody who told her she can do any of this stuff. And she's like, I can't believe that I can do this though. Like I, 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 like we were doing some jumping, we were doing different things. And she was like, I can do it. I said, yeah, you can do it. Now, granted, I mean, we're not going to the Olympics tomorrow, but with the right training and the right, you know, progression from here, then here are the things that you'll be able to do. And she was like, that's awesome. So, you know, I mean, you can have success and it doesn't have to be in person with someone, but as long as, you know, they know what they're doing <laughs> and, you know, you have a plan, like people just want a plan, you know, like what, what am I going to do? What can I do? What can I do? How should I do it? They want a plan. Yeah. I, I mean, when you go into an office and you, you see someone and you're not really, you don't know as much as the provider knows, of course, and they don't, they end the session. They're like, Oh, we'll just see you next time. And, but don't do these things that can be really confusing to someone. And that in itself can impact someone's healing journey. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that other therapist had, was it a therapist or someone mm -hmm. else? Told I think people don't know what they don't know. And there are some people who are very conservative in their care. Um, there are also some people who don't understand an athlete's mentality. So you, you're a CrossFitter, you work with CrossFitters, you understand that. I played volleyball internationally, you know, I've run track, I've, you know, done a lot of different things and I understand the mentality. If you don't understand the mentality of the people that you're working with, if you, you can't really speak to that, that's going to be problematic. Yeah, for sure. Because any athlete that you tell no to, it's like, it's like children, you know, you tell a child no, and they're like, I heard yes. And they go do exactly what you told them not to do. That's what it's like working with athletes. You say no. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, you said, yes, good, good. We'll do it. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's not necessarily because they're just trying to be defiant. Some might be, but that's their life. When you've got somebody who's participated in sport at a very, very high level for a very, very long time, probably most of their life, that's how they identify that, you know, that's who they identify as. Like, it's like, I am soccer mm -hmm. player, volleyball player, track and field runner, CrossFitter. I am this person. So when you take that away, they're like, well, who the heck am I now? Like, I can't, like, there's no life without this thing, you know? So you, you, it's all about the approach. Yeah, for sure. It, I am very suspicious of seeing providers that do not understand my athletic goals because it goes back to being dismissed, not understood. Like, look, you're not going to tell me not to do this unless you did surgery on me and I'm going to ruin this surgery. You're not going to tell me. And I know, yeah, other athletes are that way because that is their life and you have to negotiate. I had a doctor that wanted to operate on me. And my question was, if you do the surgery, can I continue to play? Probably not. If you don't do the surgery, what are my odds that I'm not going to play? I don't know. I will go with, I don't know. But he walked into my room saying, we need to schedule you for surgery. No, sir. I was a sophomore in college. Not happening. You're about to take my entire life away from me. The funny thing is, that me telling him no was the best decision I ever made. 
I had tremendous pain in both legs. We thought I had just like shin, I had like started off as plantar fasciitis. We thought I had shin splints, go to the doctor, bone scan both legs. I had stress fractures in both legs. Um, he was like, you're going to break your leg. Like it's bad. And I'm like, okay. I said, so, you know, and I was like, but if, if I have surgery, I'm at risk of losing my scholarship, you know? And I'm like, yeah, not happening. And I was still on the roster for the national team. Not happening. <laughs> not happening. So I was like, okay, I hear you. Um, I went home that summer. That was the spring of my sophomore year. I went home that summer and I worked with my track coach from high school. And we did workouts every day. And I hated it. Oh my God, I hated it. And she is tough. I love her to pieces. She's like a second mom to me. And I hated it. I probably said I hate you a lot of times too. She's like, whatever, you don't need to like me now. But, but we did grass workouts and we did a lot of strength training and stuff like that. Everything to kind of, and I did beach workouts and all sorts of stuff. And come fall, like, you know, I wasn't starting, which kind of, you know, was kind of sad, but um, as the season progressed, but I was playing, I was able to play. And I was like, okay. And my senior year I started, but again, going back to a doctor that told me, like you need to have the surgery, you know, and I continued to play outside of college for another three years. Yeah. Wow. For another three years and travel overseas and all that stuff. So, you know, again, going back to the story, like, are they listening to your story? Do they understand the impact, the ramifications? Are they, have they given you options? Are they just talking at you? Are they, you know, are, are, are they kind of being a partner in your care? Or are they just like doling out stuff, you know, like you need to do this and you need to do this, that kind of stuff, you know? Tough. So the takeaways I would say from this episode are if you're going to see a provider, write down your list of questions and have them all answered. Mm-hmm. Things to look out for is make sure that provider is listening to your story, right? Mm -hmm. And then be, if you're in an area that you cannot see someone, but if you're looking for a pelvic floor physical therapist and it's not easy for you to see that person in live in the flesh, then see if they offer telehealth services. You're not getting anything less from telehealth, right? The outcomes prove that it's just as effective and in some cases even more effective um, than in person. That's awesome. Jay, is there any resources or directories that you suggest people look into? Because you, you're, even though you're based out in Atlanta, you have your license in other states. You're not mm-hmm. just in Georgia. No, I'm licensed in New York and Florida. Okay, so... And Georgia. Do you are you are you a pelvic guru directory or do you know any other ones? Pelvic guru, um, the American Physical Therapy Association, the Academy of Pelvic Health, um, and also Herman and Wallace's directory, which I cannot remember the name of it, but if you Google um, Herman and Wallace, and I think there is uh, on their website, there should be something on there for the directory um, that you can go to and pull up you know, clinicians in or around your area. 
Um, okay. So, and, and some of the way, the way that some of the directories are, most of the directories are, they may not allow the clinician to necessarily even put in like all the states that they're licensed in. So they'll do, so my primary state is Georgia because I'm here, physically mm -hmm. here, but ultimately reach out, you know, if you are in Arizona and, you know, and you need a pelvic floor physical therapist, I'm pretty sure if you reached out to a physical therapist, they will direct you to somebody there. Yeah, um, for sure. As well. So, you know, cause I, I am constantly referring people like, Hey, this person's in your area, this person's in your area. Um, you know, so it, you know, just reach out when all else fails, just reach out to somebody. Do you have any programs that you that any of the listeners should check out? Yeah, so um, we ac actually have a few programs. If you go to www.jmmhealthsolutions.com slash birth solutions, um, and you scroll down to our programs, we have um, caring for your body after a cesarean birth. So if you know that you're going to have a planned C-section or you have just had a C-section, then this is a great program because we go through what you need to do immediately after, as in like the day of surgery, <laughs> like immediately after, while you're still in the hospital, um, all the way through that first, that, that first three months. Um, and, you know, we even have movement strategies, exercise program. And when I say exercise program, it's really a movement program, a rehabilitation program to kind of get you up and moving. And it's something that you can do for an extended period of time. So if you feel like, okay, maybe I need to do this a little bit longer, then that's fine as well. We also have a program for women with um, pubic symphysis dysfunction. So managing your pubic symphysis dysfunction is the name of the program. Um, we also have on there um, a birth healing webinar that is uh, just really talking women through that fourth trimester. So those first three months after they've had a baby. And then we are in, I'm in the process of um, finishing up a program that should be out to you soon. Um, another program for moms in postpartum. So stay tuned for that. But um, you can definitely head to that website. And if you have any questions and as more programs come out, we can, you know, we'll have them on there as well. Awesome. I'll be sure to include that link into the website or on the show notes and include the C-section recovery women with pubic symphysis dysfunction and the birth healing webinar. Well, Jay, I really appreciate all of your time. And of course, I appreciate every, all the time you've given me before this podcast. Do you have anything else that you would, let, let me ask you one question. Where do you want to see pelvic health physical therapists in just overall the labor and delivery process or the fourth trimester process in 10 years? Where do you, where do you want us to be positioned? It needs to be a standard of care. Um, no doubt. I think that a lot of the things that women are coming to me for when they are perimenopausal and menopausal can be avoided or mitigated way earlier than when they're coming to me. I'm seeing women who are having, you know, pelvic pain issues um, and they're having pelvic pain issues after having had, you know, you start going through their birth history and they've had, you know, end-to-end uh, -end tears or they've, you know, they're, they're like, Hey, you know, I, I had, um, 
I had stitches and they don't know, you know, what, what kind of thing they had. Maybe they had a husband stitch, maybe they had, you know, um, instrument assisted birth or, you know, what, whatever it is along the way, you know, whether it was physical, whether it was nutrition wise, whether it was, you know, other things going on hormonally, there are a lot of things that women are dealing with and they're like, well, how come nobody told me this? Like, five years ago, 10 years ago, and they're dealing with these things and not realizing that there were solutions for these things to begin with. So I really hope that in, in say another five, 10 years that we're looking at pelvic health as a standard of care and, and not only just in the birth community, but, you know, I've worked with kids in pediatric pelvic health. I've worked with men, like, you know, every urologist office needs to be aligned with pelvic health therapists. Every pediatric office needs to be aligned with a pelvic health therapist. I can't tell you how many kids I've sent to pediatric GI specialists that the pediatricians for things that the pediatricians didn't catch. And I'm like telling the parents, you need to go see this person because like they've got these issues going on. And they're like, so why did the pediatrician not tell us anything? I have no idea. I'm not going to speak to the pediatrician, but this is who you need to go see. You know? So I feel like there, there are several different areas that we, we can make an impact. Um, but it needs to be a practice or a discipline that's known because still, Every day I hear people say, I didn't even know that there was something called pelvic health. Yep. So. I see it happening. I mean, people like you that are advocates and that are pushing the profession forward, it's, it's going to take time, but it's going to happen. Well, thank you so much again. You're welcome, my dear. You're welcome. Jay, did we get real today? We always get real, though. Yeah, we, we do. We do. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. If you want to know more about Dr. Martin and what she offers, head to her website or follow her on Instagram at The Pelvic Perspective. Her website link will be in the show notes. If you want to know more about the podcast, check out www.thevaginapt.com forward slash Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. For the latest and the greatest about the podcast, including extras, previews, follow us on Instagram at Pelvic Docs Podcast. And then if you want to join the private community, you can by checking out the link in the bio on our Instagram page. One more thing, you guys, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening app. Thanks again for listening. See you next week for another episode of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.